0: Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Borchene. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited to have you tuning in again today. We are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, last week we covered, uh, well, the first few verses as we were examining this thing about lawsuits amongst the brethren. as, As believers were attacking other believers trying to defend themselves, trying to fight for themselves against each other like the hand fighting against the foot in the body of Christ. Now, what we took away from that study, let me just recap here for just a moment, was that we're not to try to fight for ourselves in this world. We should be content for the faith and let God fight for us. Okay, we should be rather than trying to contend earnestly for our own kingdom, we're to contend for his kingdom as we read in the book of Jude. So many think this means that we're being weak in the face of the enemy, but th- this is not a passive mission that. Before us. You see, it's far more difficult to turn the other cheek, as we're told to do in Matthew 5 39. It's far more difficult to trust the Lord with justice rather than taking matters into our own hands. The world is filled with the spirit of the adversary, and the adversary's sole mission is threefold steal kill, and destroy, according to John 10.10. So it's not if you're going to be wronged, but when and how often. And and what we find is that this is part of the refiner's fire, the sanctification process that's part of the test of our faith. And and we have to firmly come to this conclusion that God is either in control or he is not. Either he's the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills Or he's not. You go back to Psalm 50, verse 10 on that. If he's not, then we're all just wasting our time. If he is, then I don't need to break my neck trying to protect my rights, my property, or even my reputation. God can and will take care of all of that for me. Now, I don't need to, to be involved in things that are sinful, and then defiling my reputation, and thereby breaking my responsibility as being an ambassador for Christ, but rather when we're constantly trying to defend our sides, our our perspective of things, our, maybe somebody's gossiping against us, we're really trying to defend ourselves constantly against these things. It's exhausting, because we just can't put up enough armament, or walls around us to defend against these things. We have to recognize that God is in total control and his will cannot be thwarted, according to Job 42.2 and Isaiah 14.27. You see, Satan is a liar and a deceiver, according to John 8.44 and Revelation 12.9, but he's not able to overcome the will of God. In fact, Satan knows that his time is short, according to Revelation 12.12, and he knows that he is already Defeated. And it's only going to take one angel that's going to lasso him by a chain and throw him in the pit, according to Revelation 10, chapter 20. So it doesn't even take a, a whole battalion of troops. No, it's just one angel that's going to lasso him, chuck him in the pit. He's already defeated. God saw the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46 10. And there's no accidents, according to Ephesians 1 Our God is omnipresent, according to Psalm 139. And scriptures tells us that he holds everything together according to Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1, 1.3, and Acts 17.28. So in a literal context, your cells would not retain their structure if God did not allow them to be. That means that the people creating friction in your life are even being held together by God for a reason. And so when we examine Job chapter 1 and 2 and Revelation chapter 13, we see that God is in complete control, and is ultimately allowing Satan the power to inflict permissible wounds and even to hinder us, and this may be to test our character or even to toughen us up and to demonstrate God's power over Satan ultimately. It's like a Jericho wall that stood before Israel or Goliath before David. We make plans but the Lord orders our steps according to Proverbs 16:9 and Psalm 37:23. So if we believe what we say we believe, then nothing that comes against us can prevail. Even when the odds are stacked against us and it looks like we're losing, let's be reminded of what Paul told us in Romans chapter 8:18 to 38. Here's what we read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... our lord this this is a powerful message it needs to be sounded loudly and clearly to a society in which we incessantly hear about getting our rights but rarely about willing to suffer earthly loss in order to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven according to Matthew 6.20. After all, we cannot take anything earthly with us when we depart from this life, according to 1 Timothy 6.7-10. So why should we be so concerned about earthly rights and possessions? It's all going away. If it's not built on the foundation that we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, then it will be burned up. We should be willing to give to one another rather than trying to get From one another, and often that just requires a proper perspective. You know, a pastor was sharing about his friend who went on a trip to Brazil who loaned $1,000 to his guide and translator. They put together an agreement for repayment, and unfortunately his guide cheated him out of his money. So obviously the man was angry and disappointed, and he was eager to get his money back. So he shared this predicament with a non-Christian roommate, a native Brazilian, who calmly said, let it go. Just forgive the man. He then shared how he had lost $40,000 because his business partner hadn't paid taxes. And what's especially interesting is the average Brazilian makes just $240 a month. So the man with the grievance who lost $1,000 is now spilling his, his sob story to a man who lost One lost his surplus vacation money, while the roommate had lost an enormous amount of money that took him years to pay off. And sometimes we just need a better perspective. You see, loss and injustice are inevitabilities in a world under the temporary rule of this present darkness, but we must never compromise our testimony or our character to have a temporary perceived Victory. So let's ask some questions here. Let's examine this carefully. One of the questions that's come in is that, is it ever legitimate for a believer to use the secular court system? Well, I would say yes. To that. You see, Paul worked within and understood the Roman justice system. You go to Acts chapter 16 and 22 on that. But he didn't drag others into court. He was generally the one being dragged into court. In Acts chapter 18, we read that in the city of Corinth, during Paul's time there, the Jews had dragged him before the proconsul there. So Galileo, who listened to it and said, no, this is a minor religious dispute. This has no place in the court of law. So Paul himself benefited from the Roman courts, which were being influenced by the Spirit with regard to Paul, given what the Lord said to Paul is recorded in Acts 18, verse 9, where he says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So we also see that there will be times when we will be taken into courts. Often these courts are going to be before these rulers and judges, but we're not to worry. We're not to be anxious about this. For the Lord will give us this platform and even the words to speak through the Holy Spirit if it's something that's being done wrongfully. If there's no justice there, we're being drugged into the courts. uh, Well, you can almost say illegally. If someone has manufactured a story against you, if there's a a falsehood that's being presented about you and you're being drugged into court... Then God is for you. He is with you in this. Embrace it. Embrace the struggle. Embrace the pressure. We are better under pressure. We look to this: uh, Luke chapter twelve, verse eleven, and Matthew ten, nineteen, amongst many others. Peter himself addresses this in First Peter chapter two, twelve to fifteen. He says, "Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong." they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing only with, with civil disputes between individuals, not criminal actions or disputes with insurance companies or class action suits or any type of other legal action. So in Romans thirteen four, Paul makes it clear that secular civil law courts are valid and needed. The, the only thing that is categorically ruled out is for a believer to sue another believer over matters that could be resolved within the church. So there are rules for the church and for the state. Both are God's governing authorities. The church does not have jurisdiction over criminal justice and that because that belongs to the state. And we read that in, in Romans chapter 13. So there are some viable examples of when it's permissible to sue, in my opinion, such as seeking protection from the state. You see, churches have filed class action suits for protection of religious freedom, even right-to-life organizations have sued for the protection of the unborn, and such legal steps must be weighed carefully and must be undertaken only with due consideration of the ultimate impact on the church's effectiveness but at least, I don't think 1 Corinthians 6 rules them out. We could say that. So number two, what about friendly lawsuits to gain insurance proceeds? Well, suppose a Christian family has a swimming pool, and God forbid, at a youth group party, one of the teens drowns. The family owns the pool, has a million-dollar insurance policy, but the insurance company won't pay unless they're sued. In fact, that happens quite a bit. It is possible then, I believe to file a friendly suit in which the grieving family agrees to file against the insurance company but not seek additional damages from the family that own the pool. It's an unfortunate set of circumstances that must be navigated with discernment but does not seem to fall under the instructions of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we see a third question. Are Christians forbidden to prosecute other Christians? Well, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 6 bear on the extremely limited context. The moment we press this passage beyond this context, we run into serious difficulties. For one thing, he's dealing with disputes, not with issues like violent crimes. Maybe he's not even covering things like child abuse or domestic violence or even sexual abuse. These type of cases seem to fall into a 1 Timothy 5, 8 domain where a believer is capable of behaving even worse than an unbeliever, and and it even calls to mind Matthew 7, 21-23 where someone may call themselves a Christian, but are no different than Judas. They walked alongside Christ, but not with Christ. Therefore, they didn't have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within them, giving them clarity and, and proper decision making. They weren't being refined by the Holy Spirit. So consequently, judgment must fall. So going back to 1 Corinthians 5, we must judge the affairs within the body of Christ. This actually serves to uphold Christ's reputation and the testimony of the church in the community. So let's move on, examine the next three verses here. We're to live out our new identity from verses 9 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. Let's read that. We'll just cover verses 9 to 10 here. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that those who live for themselves will not spend eternity with God. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ, and consequently, they do not have Christ's best interest at heart, nor the other Christians. And and you can see here we can spend a lot of time talking about this. Uh, many try to uh, you know say that this is not talking about homosexual behavior because of malakos that's uh, the use there that particular Greek word that refers to a passive role that's often within homosexual relationships. Not arsino koites that refers to an active role. But either way we say, see sexual immorality there, and th- and this list is referring then to an active, unrepentant behavior that is not the fruit of a believer. And so many who practice unrepentant homosexual lifestyles use Ezekiel 1649 as the explanation as to why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to justify their position on this. Let me just read that to you. I don't want to bunny trail too much, but this is absolutely important that we understand this. They try to use scripture to defend a position of immorality before God. We do that well. We have Dalmatian theology. We pick and choose scriptures to justify positions, lifestyles that we know is not a God-appointed nor a God-honoring lifestyle. They read and used this in Ezekiel 16.49, where that we read, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. However, they do not read the next verse that states, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Now you say, well, what's this committing abomination mean? Well, Jude one seven. Gives us the description even for the word sodomy that's that's covered great detail in Leviticus 18 and 20. Sodom and Gomorrah, we read in Jude 1:7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh, as set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we see that Paul separates the subjects of homosexuality from the sodomites, lest there be any confusion on this. Sodomy is generalized as sexual immorality, even including bestiality. And those who would suggest that this that this is what angered God and not homosexuality, then those individuals should also read Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32, Genesis 19, 1 to 13. Again, Leviticus 18 and 20 and 1 Timothy 1, 10. So Paul separates the two here once again, demonstrating the biblical position on homosexuality. So the context ultimately of this message today is not on the subject of homosexuality, which I've preached on before, but let me just address this briefly for those of you who had joined our fellow or listen to this broadcast at a later time since I spoke on that subject, let me share with you excerpts from our positional statement on this. You see, God created human beings distinctly as male and female, according to Genesis 1.27. The distinctness is complementary, and, and relational nature of this human race as male and female is based on the created order that is given by God when he created humanity In his image. And we go to Genesis 1, Genesis 5, 1 Corinthians 11, James 3, 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, amongst many others on that. So the created distinctiveness and relational nature also established the basis for the marital relationship as being between one man and one woman, according to Genesis 2, 23 to 24, and Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. So the Bible affirms two options. Or giftings for sexual expression only. Monogamous marital relations between one man and one woman or celibacy. And you go to Genesis 1 27 to 28, 2 18 21 to 24, Matthew 19 4 to 12, amongst many others. There are a number of scriptures Hebrews 13 4, Ephesians 5 22. So within the, the biblical design, there, there can only be found sexual fulfillment, whereas outside, that design of biblical designed sexual fulfillment outside of that is improper. Anything outside of the biblical design as a sexual relationship with a man and woman who are in a marriage bond, there's only celibacy. And anything outside of that is improper, according to scripture. First Corinthians chapter 6, 13 to 20, and Leviticus 18 to 20. So the fall of humanity, the Genesis chapter 3 corrupted human sexuality in both spiritual and physical ways, as we see in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And and one result is often confusion and pain in the lives of those who struggle with brokenness regarding gender. And who struggle with the guilt of desiring sinful expressions of sexuality, according to Genesis 3 1 to 7, and Romans 3 and Romans 5. So the Bible prescribes faith in Jesus Christ as the remedy and as the provision. For life, and we understand the Bible to teach that we must not condone sin while demonstrating compassion for sinners. According to Romans three twenty three, we also read that in Jude as well, distinguishing between the value and identity of each person as an individual and the behavioral choices which some individuals may make. According to Galatians five nineteen and twenty five, so we understand the Bible to differentiate between the recognition of personhood and rejection of those acts which it defines as immoral while simultaneously extending forgiveness and healing to all who respond in believing faith to its universal offer of God's grace according to Luke 1510 and jo- excuse me John chapter 8. So listen the people of Sodom were filled with pride and greed, and this was reflected in how they lived and even how they engaged in immoral sexual behavior. If there's no fear of God, then the flesh will always invert and invent new ways of breaking God's heart. Uh, we'll talk more about sexual immorality if, in our next study, but note the seriousness of the sin of covetousness or greed that's highlighted in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 10-11 and 6-8. Greed may manifest itself into a desire for what one should not have according to Exodus chapter 20, 17, and Romans 7, 7. Or it even may be an excess of, of, a desire of, one that, of, of a desire that someone may legitimately have. So we see that from Ephesians chapter 5, 5, and Colossians 3, 5. So the sins enumerated here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 share the common traits of being self-indulgent and ultimately self-serving, which is the core of sin according to 1 John 3, 4. So here is the unfortunate reality. The Corinthian Christians were committing many of the sins mentioned right here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. He's not talking about the possibility that they may do it. He's confronting the reality that these Christians were calling themselves ambassadors of Christ, representatives of the Most High, and committing the very acts that were symbolic of someone who is devoid of the Spirit. Some of them were involved in coveting and swindling, according to verse 8. Some into ad- adultery and fornication of chapter 5, verse 1 and 6.15. Some in idolatry, even, of chapter 10, 14. Drunkenness, chapter 11, 21. And even rev- reviling of chapter 4, verse 15. So the fact is, some of the believers in this group of Christians were engaging in sin that was an unacceptable behavior as an ambassador for Christ. They forgot who they were as saints of the Most High, and and thus thus they're being deceived and living like and acting like unbelievers. So don't you see the context here? If we forget who we are in Christ, then our behavior will look like the world, We'll start to sue each other. We'll lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, covet. The list goes on and on. And some of you are running laps with no finish line in sight. You're running because you know it's better than walking, but you don't know where you're running to. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 9.24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Then run in such a way as to get the prize. So Paul informs the Corinthians that they were previously like the wicked in Corinth. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So in spite of their serious behavioral problems, Paul insists that the identity of these Christians has changed, and he insists that they have been completely forgiven, set apart as God's children. And we see that in Acts chapter 22 verse 16, where it refers to Paul's salvation and his subsequent mm-hmm. baptism. And so presumably, Paul considers the list of sins he has just cited as filth that needs to be washed away. And so, so far from the threatening their standing with God because of their sins, he affirms their security of their standing with God in spite of themselves. How can that be? Because our standing with God is never based on our work for Him, but always and only on Christ's work. That that means you don't have to change your moral life before you can come to Christ. You have to come to Christ the way you are before your moral life can be changed. You need the Holy Spirit in you, transforming your mind, the way you think, so that you put on the mind of Christ and you start to think differently. You examine life differently. Are, Are you willing to believe in Christ then and let him begin to change your life from the inside out? Go back to Romans chapter 12 on that. You know, someone told me the other day that they couldn't come back to church until they'd gotten their life together. And so I politely replied, that logic is like, te- like me telling you, let me first get well, and then I'll go to the hospital. Now, now don't get me wrong. The church is more than a hospital. It's a, it's a house of worship to Almighty God. It's a forward operating, operating base for equipping the saints for the work of ministry of Ephesians chapter 4. But you have to start at boot camp. And I know that many will tell you that those who serve in the military, especially in our special forces, we got a number of them in our church, that without training and discipline, you cannot be ready for the battlefield. You have to start, take that first step. Jesus takes you as you are and then transforms you from within. And we have to understand that Christians are going to make mistakes and sometimes big ones, but as a believer, we'll receive instruction and we can repent Make course corrections because, after all, it's all about Jesus, and a real Christian should care about what Jesus Christ commands, according to John 14. Verse 15. So I, I want to encourage you in this. I hope you at least have received some clarity. We've got a lot more to cover in First Corinthians chapter six. If you missed any of the prior studies in this, please go to CalvaryFountain.com, listen there, re-listen all the broadcasts. You can even watch the videos, download the sermon notes, share it with your friends, get the word out, and we would love to worship with you on Sundays. In fact, we have services there at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. right at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. God bless you, my friends. I hope to see you soon. Take care.